Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast, where I bring you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. This is Ryan Tansom, your host, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Life After Business podcast. Ryan Tansom here. Thanks for tuning back in. Today's episode, I just absolutely had a ton of fun. Joe Sweeney was on the show. He has an amazing past, tons of experience, a wealth of knowledge. Joe started his career out of his, uh, after his MBA buying a manufacturing firm, buying four of them, selling them, getting into the sports management world, trying to buy businesses for very, very uh, famous athletes, one of them being Brett Favre. Then he gets. Then he got into the the mergers and acquisitions world, being an investment banker, private equity, and has rolled all the way into coaching, speaking, and a very very well known author. He wrote a book called Networking is a Contact Sport, which is a New York Times bestseller, Moving the Needle, and he's about to launch his third book called After Further Review. Joe and I talk about his journey from being a business owner into the sports world, into his coaching and writing career, how he has re-identified and continued to progress himself as an individual, and how he is helping people of influence really hit the pause button, internally reflect, trying to figure out who they are, what do they want from their life and why. He's got experience working with the Navy SEALs and how they transition into a life after being a Navy SEAL. Worked with, like I said, major famous sports athletes and a ton of entrepreneurs. So absolutely a must listen to. Hope you enjoy the interview with Joe. Without further ado, here's Joe Sweeney. Good morning, Joe. How are you doing today? Uh, terrific, Ryan. Thank you very much for coming on the Life After Business podcast. Well, I'm uh, honored and delighted to be here with you. So super excited. Uh, we just got done chatting a little bit and found out how small this world is. And why don't you, for our listeners' sake, just give our listeners a little bit of a background of where you came from and where you are today. Well, I usually say to answer that question, Ryan, do you have seven hours and seven beers? But uh, <laughs> uh, since we have, I know you've got seven beers, but I don't think our <laughs> listeners have seven hours. It's so. a perfect time for a beer right now, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I think probably to, to best summarize it, I've... Um, uh, I've done a lot of things the last 32 years in business, and I feel really blessed and fortunate that I've been able to combine my love of business with my passion for sports. And early in my career, I owned four different manufacturing companies, ran them, sold them, um, and it really provided some opportunities for me to delve into the sports world. So uh, I was president of the Wisconsin Sports Authority uh, here in Wisconsin, kind of the sports commission for the state. That led me into owning a sports uh, management firm, represented about 24 pro athletes and coaches, including three-time MVP Brett Favre uh, of the Green Bay Packers. <laughs> but what I realized early on was that I needed to help um, some of these athletes figure out what they wanted to do in their life after football, which really coincides with your theme, life after business. And so I started looking at small companies for these athletes and coaches to buy that when they were done, they'd have purpose and a place to go. And some of them could leverage and use their sports persona. So I worked with an investment banking firm here in Wisconsin. Long story short, I ended up buying a third of the investment banking firm and did mergers and acquisitions for like a decade and a half. 
But in this process, um, I've done a lot of other things too. I've sat on 28 boards of directors and about, um, oh, I don't know, six or seven years ago, I kind of had this smoldering discontent inside saying, you know, I got a nice family, I've had a great career, but something's not quite right. And it wasn't pathological. It wasn't like I was an alcoholic. I wasn't on drugs. But something was sort of um, scratching. Uh, there was an itch that I had a scratch. And uh, as one of your previous um, interviewees, uh, Lloyd Reed, calls this from the Halftime Institute, a smoldering discontent. And so what it made me do, uh, Ryan, is to hit the pause button. And I ended up writing a book um, about six years ago called Networking as a Contact Sport. And it basically, I wrote it for my kids. I ended up publishing it, and it made the New York Times bestseller list, so everyone thought I knew what the hell I was talking about. <laughs> so I got on the speaking tour, and about a year and a half ago, I left the investment banking firm uh, because I'm on the road speaking. I've developed training programs. I wrote a second book called Moving the Needle. Uh, it help, it's to help people get clear, get free, and get going in their career, business, and life. Um, that's done well, and uh, I've just finished my third book and looking to publish uh, my third book called After Further Review, which is really everything I've thought about the last 35 or 40 years of my life. And uh, I think that book will be 10 times better than the previous two combined. So I'm really spending my life now teaching, coaching, um, still in the investment world. Um, I've got um, involved in several private equity investments. I sit on uh, six boards. But, and still do a lot of consulting work in the M&A field uh, for uh, companies that need some direction and really help the owners figure out life after business. So a lot of the things that you do and your listeners listening to, um, I'm kind of doing that every day. So it's an honor and privilege to be here with you. Well, and I just, I, I love it. First of all, that was very well summed up. Uh, I do not have seven beers down, but <laughs> um, I... Don't even know where to go into this because there's so much good uh, material that we can talk about. And when I when I was looking uh, up your bio and kind of trying to figure out uh, whether we could get you on the show, you know, you, there was so much correlation with all of your verbiage on your website. On and I could tell, I could see the Lloyd Reeb and the Halftime Institute uh, philosophies coming through. And you know, what I want to do is kind of jump back a little bit, Joe, because it's a journey and you've, you've, you've walked this long journey and how you got to your halftime. So if we can go back to the, the four manufacturing companies that you were owning, how did you get into them? How long did you own them? And what were some of the reasons that you ended up getting out of them? Um, well, I, I, uh, back in the mid eighties, I, uh, this is kind of an interesting story on persistence. Um, I was, I was receiving my, uh, I was working on my MBA uh, at the University of Notre Dame, my master's in business, and I really wanted to take a different route to my career. I come from a large family in Wisconsin. I've got eight older brothers. I was the ninth boy born in our family. My parents were really persistent. They wanted to have a baby girl, and they said they'd try to have one. They popped out nine straight boys, and the tenth was only a girl. That's an exercise in persistence. Like, <laughs> no kidding. But, but I come from a long uh, a long line of entrepreneurs. So I was in graduate school and I really loved manufacturing. I loved building things and I realized I wouldn't be a very good employee. So I wanted to own and operate my own manufacturing firm and I didn't have any money. <laughs> in fact, by the time I was done, uh, my wife and I had uh, two kids in graduate school. Um, you now know what graduate students do for entertainment at Notre Dame. <laughs> uh, <laughs> 
So we had two kids. I had a negative, negative net worth of 50000 and I wanted to own and uh, operate a manufacturing firm. So, Ryan, for two years, I every Friday and Saturday night, I went to the library, and I built a, a manual database. I couldn't Google. There weren't Google things back then of small privately held companies between Chicago and Minneapolis because my wife and I are from Wisconsin. We come from massive families, and this is where we wanted to settle. So I developed a manual database on five by seven cards of thir- over 1,300 companies, and I wrote every one, basically looking for an elderly owner that would bring a young guy in with a lot of energy to take over the business and through sweat equity and conventional financing, eventually buy out that owner. Wow. Most people laughed at me. Long, complex story short, I found a guy here in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 32 years ago. I moved here. Went to work for him, ended up buying his business, and subsequently owned four more. And so I did that, and what I really realized, kind of a little bit at a young age, smoldering discontent, I had four little babies, and I was either in an airplane or in a factory, and I kept thinking, my God, this takes a lot to run a business, and I really liked my kids and um, didn't want to do that and had an offer, much like you know some of your situations, to sell, so I did it. And I did it at a young age and uh, and then tried to figure out what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. I kind of took a year off at a young age, kind of did my bucket list things. I had 100 things I wanted to do before I died, and I started doing a lot of them. Like I wanted to be a single-digit handicap in golf. I wanted to run the Boston Marathon. I wanted to, So I wrote all these goofy things down. And by the end, I started saying, my God, I better I better either create a new list or go back to work or I'm going to die. <laughs> right. So I did those, and it really kind of led me into the sports world because I've always enjoyed the sports. I worked in the Notre Dame athletic department when I was there, and I was always kind of conflicted between do I go down the business route or the sports route. And so for about a decade, decade and a half, I got into the sports world with the sports authority uh, here and uh, then uh, met Brett Favre, started a sports management company. And uh, and then, as I mentioned in the intro, um, was looking for companies for my clients to buy, and it led me to the investment banking world. Um, and so I've, I've always had two or three jobs. My wife calls it, I just have adult ADD. But um, <laughs> I just have a lot of energy. And um, it, But what really transformed my life, I think, was, which is the basis of my third book, I, I literally hit the pause button around 50 and said, you know what, I'm going to be dead soon. And what do I want to do between now and the time I leave this earth? And so it really kind of put me into a um, reflective mode. And I'm not a real reflective guy. That's why my third book, Writing on Reflection, some of my buddies are going to look at the book and say, who the hell is this Sweeney? That's not the guy I know. But <laughs> <laughs> So I think part of the journey um, and why I've done a lot of different things is that I think we we find things that burn inside us, and I think we got to listen to that calling. And it's not really one day you have an epiphany. I think it's a gradual step, kind of like putting together a jigsaw puzzle where things start coming together. Because I think, Ryan, a lot of us start life, and we think you start here and you draw a line straight up, and that's how you become successful and how you find meaning and purpose in life. I don't believe that. I think it's an up and down. This works. That doesn't work. Um, I, uh, my dear friend is Lloyd Reeb, who was on your show. He talks about, as you go through transition in life and life after business, do this thing called low-risk 
probes. And the whole idea of low-risk probes, put your toe in the water on certain things. Does it feel good? Does it make sense? Because I think a lot of people, we say, oh, my God, I hate our job. I've always wanted to be fill in the blank. So we quit our job and we rush to this new thing because we think it makes sense. We get there and after a month we say, oh, my God, this doesn't make sense to me. So so part of the journey, I think, is to uh, be open, listen. And you can't really listen, I think, until you learn to get quiet every day. But listen to what your guts are telling you and it won't lead you astray. And I've kind of been on that journey. And the big piece of it, if I had to give any advice, you got to really listen to what your guts are saying, and you can't listen to what everyone else uh, is telling you, even though you can get advisors and wingmen and wingwomen to help you, because nobody knows what your journey's about but you. And I think sometimes we listen to people and say, oh, I really like to do that, but my mom won't let me, my spouse won't let me, oh, God. And the, the final conclusion, the nightmare of that, Ryan, is, we go to our deathbed and we say, why the hell didn't we do whatever it is, fill in the blank? So that's sort of the mission of my third book is to help people um, help people discover that uh, early so they don't go to their deathbed and have regrets about their life. Well, and I'm, and I'm interested to, to hear more about that because, you know, with your journey and how those breadcrumbs have led you from owning those companies to the sports world, to M&A, to your, your coaching and speaking is you've had a ton of exposure to, I mean, like in today's reality, I mean, you've had the definition of success over and over and over again, but what you've seen and the, the people that you've had exposure to are all in that same kind of successful bucket, but what are the what are the experiences that you've had with these individuals as they come to these inflection points where they either sell their company or they like you said with the sport I mean athletes are a great correlation to all the business owners who hit success but then they have to look internally to figure out who they are what have you experienced and how how have other people started to live, to live the journey um, that's a great question first of all you said uh, on the outside I've had all this um, Success. First of all, Ryan, I'll tell you, I'm the biggest failure that's ever been on your show. I've failed more than anyone in an old mindset. Actually, to be honest, I don't believe in failure or it's success. Growth and learning, right? Yeah, I think we simply try things and we create results. But somehow we frame this up as, oh, Ryan, you tried that business. You failed. I don't think you fail at anything. The other thing is I really don't like the term success because really what success is for me and what it is for you are two different things, and I think we have looked at success, and we framed up success. I know on the outside, so many, quote, successful people that are absolutely miserable inside. Mm -hmm. And so (laughs) your question is, what do most people do to kind of go from this um, life after business to be successful? Quite honestly, Ryan, I don't think most people do. (laughs) Yeah, I would agree. (laughs) and, And so... But we can, we can mask this and say, oh, God, I'm so busy. I'm so excited. And very few people listen to what's inside um, and, and, and really follow that. I think the greatest example of people that I've seen has really been through my affiliation with a, um, a group down in Dallas called the Halftime Institute. It's really about um, um, the school of learning in the second half. And the basic model is, how do you help men and women go from success to significance? And Lloyd Reeb, who we've mentioned here a few times, is one of the uh, key members at halftime. But Bob Buford started this back in the 90s 
for the um, simple reason, Ryan, which your show is about, life after business. And I think the two biggest words as we get older that are most pertinent to all of us, these words are, what's next? And that's not just on a career. That's every day. You get up every day and say, what's next? What, what's, what's on my plate today? And I think in a, um, a macro sense, we're all thinking about that as we go through transitions in life. Um, in this next book, um, actually, I, um, I use a lot of football analogies, but uh, my favorite chapter is the four quarters of football and the four quarters of life. And if you look at the game of football, there are four quarters in it. If you really hit the pause button and re, you know, review your life, most of us have four quarters of our life. And the most significant part of that chapter, which pertains to your theme, Life After Business, is at the end of the second quarter. So, Ryan, think about what's a football team do at the end of the second quarter. They go into the locker room. They reflect on what worked the first and second quarter. And then they figure out a game plan for the third and fourth quarter. That's a football analogy. But in life, when we go into halftime to hit the pause button, it's a great time to reflect on what is it we want to do between now and the time we leave this earth. And you really can't get there, I don't think, unless you're, you, you really, really understand that all our lives have an expiration date on them. It means we're all going to die. So what do you want to do between now and the time you leave this earth? And, um, and so when you really say what, um, what has been the kind of the success of the people who have made this transition, I think it's they've gone into a halftime and have realized, oh, my gosh, i got to make some changes if I want to have a, a more fulfilling life. And I think what happens, Ryan, is that most people realize it is really hard. And so because um, it's it's reflective, like, you know, um, the, the the biggest challenge that I see is that entrepreneurs or athletes or I mean, I don't care who who you're talking about. Everything's qualitative, right? It's like we've got net worth, we've got cash flow, we've got quarterly reports, we've got stats and, you know, in sports. And that's how they define who they are. And there's no coaching on, hey, by the way, who are you? <laughs> Not, I don't want to know your scorecard. I want to know who are you, what do you stand for? And Lloyd asked, uh, I don't know if it was Bob that asked, or that Peter Drucker asked Bob, or Bob asked uh, Lloyd, but the question came up in our interview, which was, if you could look back at your life and you can say that you had the perfect life, what would it look like? And yeah. that takes some serious yeah. internal, you know, introspective work. Yeah. You, you hit on two things. You sort of teed up two chapters in the next book. I have a chapter four called Metrics. And I say we measure everything in football. We measure the quarterback rating, sacks, and all. You know, the quarterback rating is like three paragraphs long. In business, we measure everything. Mm -hmm. And here's the hardest question on metrics. Ryan, if your life turned out really great, what metrics would you use? That's no, a hard no question. Clue. <laughs> so I have a chapter that helps the reader work through that. Chapter nine is um, answers your other question that you just brought up. It's I say when you stop and hit the pause button, you realize it's more important to ask good questions than it is to have all the answers. So if you really stop and reflect, the two questions that come up are these. Who am I and why am I here? And the challenge of that is, you just said it, we... We measure who we are by what we own, what we do, what we have. And the challenge is when you no longer do, 
like retire, or you no longer have, you sell your big house, you sell your business, um, you lose your job or lose your money, and that definition, then you're nobody. And that's total BS. And so what I try to conclude in the chapter is um, have, have the reader reflect, and I give them tools and exercises to reframe and de- um, um, define who they are and why they're here, which I think are the two most important questions that we all need to ask. But that's really hard because what you have to do is you have to slow down the game. And in football, people were against the instant replay. You know why? Because it slowed the game down. So let's just keep going. And that's this whole obsession with busyness, I think, is a disease that's uh, our number one challenge in in life. So the problem I think we have is lack of reflection. And that's why I wrote the book. Well, and and, and I'm I'm actually really curious. And I know your book's coming out. And so everybody's going to have to obviously buy it. But I want to give us a little, a couple, uh, a couple little gold nuggets because just for my personal curiosity, Honest to God, Joe, I've had, because I'm a busy person too, I've got an adult ADD just like you, where I've had on my goal list to meditate because I know how good it is for you, I know how important it is, and I can't do it because <laughs> I just get caught up and next thing you know it's 7.30, my babies are crying and I got to go take care of them and it just constantly gets pushed down. So what, I mean... What- so I'm going to challenge you in front of a, first of all... Don't ever say on this show, I just can't. That's oh, no, no. I, yeah, yeah. You right. said I can't, Ryan. I'm calling you out. But <laughs> Good point. All right. Well, no. Well, here's, here's, here's something to think about. We do a little little Ryan coaching here on live is when you say, I can't, I just don't have time. I can't believe that came the, out of my mouth, first of all. <laughs> the, the, the chapter on the four quarters, part of that is to realize there are seasons in our life. You know, the sub sub uh, title of the chapter, there's a season for everything under heaven. Ryan, you're in a really busy season. The second quarter, and I write about this, is really a busy season. I'm in the third quarter. My kids are all raised. I'm, I'm in a different stage. So I have a lot of time, if I want to, in the morning to meditate, to pray. Um, and so all I'd ask you to do is, instead of spending 20 or 30 or 60 minutes, can you take two minutes in the morning? Just to kind of get centered, maybe just breathe. And what you'll find is two minutes will turn into five minutes. That may turn into seven minutes. Then you plan with your wife and say, honey, could I get these 12 minutes in the morning? Um, Could you watch the kids, change the diapers and all that? Because here's the challenge. If you don't take a little bit of time in the second quarter, what I've noticed, and I'm guilty of it, I got down a road that at the end of the second quarter, I'm not sure I liked who I was. Because I was so busy running, doing things. I had four kids in six years. I went to every soccer game, every basketball game, every football, every track meet. And I, I kind of, there was a sense I kind of lost who I was. Well, and, and So and, you're in a busy season. Well, and so. it's very, very good advice. And thank you for hitting me right between the eyes. Because I'm very, I'm guilty of what you just said. And I, uh, I'm very into habits and the power of habits. And so I know that, that all you have to do is slowly start to creating that habit. And is that kind of, instead of, because you know what I try and challenge our clients or our listeners or anybody that I uh, interact with is hopefully you can avoid that one event that creates that, whether it's smoldering discontent or the regret where you can slowly start to build on that over a time instead of having to have something unfortunate happen where you now look back. Yeah. Um, but no, that's why I think just a little bit every day. 
And I think the other thing, I have an exercise in the second and third book about bookending your days. If you could just start, and you're busy, if you could start with two to four minutes in the morning, Ryan, of breathing, reflecting, and then at the end of the day, look back at your day. I have an exercise that takes four or five minutes. It asks seven questions of what happened during the day, and I journal it every night. I have for seven or eight years, and it's changed my life. Seven quick questions. Here, I'll give them to you real quick for your... Number one, and I journal this every night, what's the best thing that happened today? Best thing. And I believe in the law of attraction, so I think you start attracting great things in your life. Mm -hmm. Number two, what did I do today to live my ideal day? Now, you can't really answer the question unless you go to chapter six of that, of Moving the Needle book, and it shows you how to create your ideal day. Number three, what am I most grateful for? I used to have gratitude journals, and I Mm -hmm. used to write things today, and that became too robotic. Number four, what's one new thing that I learned today? I joke in a little self-deprecation saying I'm not that smart. Um, but if I write down 365 things a year, what I learned, maybe I'll get a little smarter. Number five, I have a financial formula. What did I do today to make X dollars for my family? And I have a formula for that. Um, number six, what did I do today to allow God to work through me? And number seven, what am I looking most forward to tomorrow? And that helps set up the next day. Those seven questions have really kind of changed my life. And I used to have a hard time sleeping. I kind of worried a lot. Since I started this six or seven, eight years ago, I have zero problems sleeping at night. And all the brain research shows that whatever you think about the last five to seven minutes before you go to bed, your subconscious processes for four to five minutes. Or I'm sorry, four to five hours. And so that's why it's you, you shouldn't watch violent movies or probably watch the news before you go to bed because all that negativity processes in your brain for the next four, five, six hours. Well, and, and what's what I like about that, it, it's it's very – you can execute it. It's executable because you can actually go through – and I think that's the, the biggest thing in uh, today's world. I mean I'm a big follower of like the Tim Ferriss and all these podcasts where – everybody you know and Tony Robbins all these people are pushing the meditation but there's no like okay we'll just sit down and be quiet or like listen to something where if you actually can reflect and you've got a you know a you know a framework for what you should be thinking about because what you're doing is you're training your mind and then next the next day as you're going through and you've got your employees coming at you you've got your your family coming at you you can you can throw those scenarios back into the framework that you've trained your mind into where you want to be thinking and where you want to be going right so right. I'm, I'm curious, you know, as you with all the different exposures that you've had with all these quote unquote successful individuals, did you see or come across people that were doing this really well that you were able to see that in them? Or do you have examples of people that didn't do this and were very successful in today's terms, but you watched kind of the disaster happen? I'm just kind of curious on what, what are some of the stories that stick out to you? Well, I think some of the best success stories, I've mentioned this earlier, are people who've worked through the halftime experience at the Halftime Institute. Um, And, um, you know, without giving specific examples, I think some of the tools are hitting the pause button, doing the low-risk probes, being willing to give up who you are and what you've done to pursue a new journey. And that takes a lot because we define ourselves by who we are and what we do. And um, it's funny, as you get older, Ryan, the comments that I hear the most from people 
is not what they're most excited about, what they're doing. Most people talk about what they used to do. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and so, and I think, um, so I think there's lots of, not just so much specific examples, but some tools that successful people use in transition. The, the negatives, I think, the disasters when people um, try to hold on to something and, that was in the past and their guts are screaming. Um, Carl Jung talks a lot about, my, he's my favorite psychologist, really um, implemented it or uh, put together psychology and spirituality. But he has a whole thing on the two halves of life, where the first half you build your identity, um, you know, you build your career and all that. And in the second half, the rules are different. It's not to accumulate more. It's not that you don't need more money, more fame. It's to really stop and become an elder and mentor the the younger generation. I think the challenge we have and where people really fall is as you um, finish the first half of your life, go in the locker room, hit the pause button. Many of us think it's too hard. So what we do in the second half is just more of what we did in the first half. Like if, if your goal is to make a lot of money in the first half and you hit the pause button and say, ah, I got enough, but it's kind of scary to do some things and get out of my comfort zone. So second half, I'm just going to make more money. Then I'll be, <laughs> or if I get more publicity or more power or more fame, and it isn't about that. And if, if you look at people who have done this successfully, here's what, here's what you notice. Uh, two things. Number one is you lose power in the second half, but you gain influence. And to me, success in the first half, if you think about it, I'm not saying this is right or wrong. The first half of life, we measure success, Ryan, in the things that we can see. Mm -hmm. Cars, boats, homes, titles. And in the second half, I think success is really measured on the things you can't see. Respect, dignity, pride serving others. Um, you know, I think a guy who's really done a good job of this, and I don't ever want to bring up politics, but it's, and this is not a political statement, but Jimmy Carter. I think Jimmy Carter in his second half did much more good than he did when he was even president. Now, people can argue that, but he's really found a purpose in the second half. And I believe it was Jimmy who said, the, the Jimmy Carter said, success in the second half is really measured on the things you can't see. And I think he's right on that. I like that a lot. Yeah, um, as we were talking, I want to hear about your pause button. You were mentioning it uh, before we started the show um, because it was pretty. It's a pretty cool experience that you went through. And uh, one of my authors that I like, Eckhart Tolle, was part of the part of the story. So, can you kind of give us a little bit of a backdrop? Is this on writing the third book that we talked about? Yep. Well, um, writing a book, first of all, right, is um, you know you get this thing that bubbles up inside and. I know hundreds of people that said, yeah, I've started a book or I'm thinking of writing a book and all that. To go from I'm thinking to I've started to completing and publishing is like a thousand miles away from each other. <laughs> Just, and a lot of people um, have this idea, but in a lot of ways, it is freaking petrifying because you've got all this stuff that's you, that's building up inside. You put it together you work on it for years, and then all of a sudden you finish it, then you're going to release it to the world. That is petrifying. Mm -hmm. So um, I've had numerous things build, building up in me for about 40 years plus. And uh, about a year and a half ago, I did my first silent retreat, and I was 
thinking about this third book called After Further Review. And I'll just t- to take a digression in here, Ryan, if it's okay. The reason mm-hmm. I came up with the book is it's really 15 spiritual principles that I've been thinking about my whole life. And since I'm not a uh, pastor or a thought, you know, spiritual thought leader, I'm just kind of a businessman with a potty mouth. It'd be kind <laughs> of a, um, a uh, challenge for me to write a book on spirituality. So I took something that I knew, the game of football and sports, and I've used football as a foundation to kind of communicate these um, messages. And so the book starts at a football game when a coach doesn't like a call, he throws out a red flag. And the stadium gets quiet. That's important. The refs go to a instant replay booth, and they look at the play from every different angle. Mm-hmm. And when the the uh, refs get the call right, he comes out in the quiet stadium. He flips on the microphone and says three words. What are they, Ryan? After, finish it for me. Sorry, I was I was actually thinking about something else. <laughs> After further review. That's your adult ADD work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, my question to you, Ryan, is if an NFL official could do that with a player on a football game to get it right, what if you could do that with your life? And so the whole idea of the book is to is to help the reader stop, hit the pause button, reflect, and figure out what they want to do between now and the time they die. You just need a referee and a red flag, though. Yeah, no, but the key thing is you hit the pause button. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's and so as I was writing this to get back to the, your question is I was going to the silent retreat. And I listened to a talk by Eckhart Tolle and Wayne Dyer. It was an hour talk. And I had some anxiety about what to do with this third book. And after further review, should I even be doing it? Because it's everything that's inside me. The last chapter is on death and dying and learning how to die and learning to let go. Um, and to I think the average reader, um, kind of heavy stuff. Yeah. So as I, uh, that first night in the silent retreat, I went to bed about 8.15, woke up at 3 o'clock thinking about what Eckhart Tolle said. And Eckhart Tolle said in the interview with Wayne Dyer before he wrote the book, The Power of Now, that he had some anxiety about it. And he didn't know if he was going to sell 20 million copies or one copy. And his reflection was it didn't matter because he brought up the the item of a a tomato. Stay with me, Ryan, because there's... Oh, I love it. I love it. He says, when he reflected, he always loved tomatoes. He loved growing them. He felt that he could uh, even sell them at the at the uh, corner, uh, the street corner, and he'd be content for his life. And so, one of the things that got over his anxiety to write the Power of Now is he realized he had a fallback plan. He could always grow and sell tomatoes, and that gave him the kind of the strength and the courage to go ahead and write the Power of Now. And again, I don't know what it sold twenty million copies. Yeah, it's a it's a bunch. What what I find interesting about that too is the whole book is about being in the present moment and not having anxiety about future events. So the fact that he had anxiety about writing a book about that is just, I mean, it just shows you that everybody is subject to it. Right. And so as I got to that uh, silent retreat, woke up at three ten in the morning, I started writing and outlining and going full speed ahead on after further review. And I think it's by far the best thing I've ever created in my life and really, really excited about it and really juiced about it. So that's, you know, Eckhart Tolle and Wayne Dyer kind of gave me the uh, strength um, after reflecting on why I wanted to do it and what was the impact. And the market is really kind of your market. It's, I would say, now, 
every author thinks everyone can be helped by their book. But if you really look at it, I think it's really kind of men between the ages of 40 mm -hmm. and 65 that are experiencing some level of smoldering discontent. And they're probably heavy on sports and a little light on spirituality. But there's 100 million people that follow the NFL and uh, college football. So I think we well, able to hit them home right where right where they're thinking all day long. Yeah, and if somebody were was kind of experiencing the smoldering discontent and they read a book on spirituality, they may not even pick it up. It may not resonate with them. This is a very practical, it's non-denominational, so it's not a Catholic book, it's not a New Age book. Um, I think it will appe uh, uh, appeal to a lot of these sports-minded people that are thinking about what's next in my life. So as you were, you kept mentioning that things are bubbling up and that led to, you know, this itch that you needed to scratch. How did you become aware that it was there? I mean, like, as you know, because people are trying to figure out how to hit the pause button. You got this practical book after for the review that you're going to be helping people to do this. But how can you, if you're a listener or if you're someone that's in the busy, you know, second quarter, they're in their third that they're trying to just re, you know, calibrate where they're at. How can they identify the, what's bubbling up or what that smoldering discontent looks like? Well, first of all, I go back to this. It's the power of reflection. You got to slow down and you got to get quiet because if you don't, I think you're kind of screwed. Yeah. What yeah. I have found is that this, um, if something's not right in your life, your guts will talk to you. You say, hey, Ryan, you're off a little bit here. And that's not to panic, say, oh, my God, I'm off course. But we all get off course in life. It's like an airplane. You know, airplane takes off, and it's always off course, and it's readjusting. So are we in our lives. And so I think what happens is when you, you start thinking about what's next, you start experiencing the smoldering discontent, you got to get quiet and listen to, to it. And here's what I think happens to most, but I would say men, I work more with men than women, so I can't speak for women 100%. But what happens is when this starts bubbling up inside, we don't want to listen to it. And you know what helps us not listen to it? Becoming more busy. Four gin and tonics, getting busier <laughs> at work, um, all sorts of bad distractions. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just saying if you don't listen to this whisper of discontent, it becomes uh, a talking conversation, and eventually it'll become a screaming saying, damn it, you're going to die. Listen to it. you got to get really on track. But most of us don't. And I think the most socially acceptable thing that I see is I'll I, you know, go to a, a club or a restaurant, and I'll see a guy on his third or fourth vodka. What, what I really think about that when I see that is something's not right inside. Some, um, that guy or, or woman – their guts are trying to talk to them, but they're not listening. And you can mask that in alcohol, gambling, and a lot, and getting busy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, you know, when you've got this situation that, in let's say you're in that per you're in that you're you're that person that's experiencing the smoldering discontent, and you want to start taking action, you, you, whether you read your book or you read uh, the halftime, or you, you, how do you engage others around you? to help support you? Cause I mean, you're real, like you have mentioned, you're re-identifying who you are and you're kind of recalibrating. I mean, how do you build a support structure around you in order to do that? Well, first of all, that's a great question. That's really, I have in my first two books, something called uh, developing wingmen and wing women. Mm -hmm. It's the people who got your back, no matter what happens in life. Those are people who know, like, and trust you. And I'm going to be honest, when you go through a transition, 
Some of the people that supported you in the first half aren't going to be the people who support you in the second half. Um, they just aren't. And, I, and you know, I'm not, there are always exceptions to everything. Um, and sometimes people don't like the new you that you're, that you're going to be in the second half. Um, but then you find out who your real friends are. But I think it's critical to find out people who can support you on your journey. And sometimes you're not going to have the same friends in the second half that you had in the first half. And that's not always true, but um, I think you got to get your own support system and say, hey, I'm on this journey. I wrote this book. I went out. I went out with seven or eight of my buddies. And after all my kids left, they said, Swain, what are you doing? I said, "Ah, I'm thinking about this book and all that, but I'm not a writer. I have no idea how to write it. I don't know how to publish it. But I just got this stuff brewing inside me. And seven of my buddies said, what's the basic message in your book, which is networking as a contact sport? Mm-hmm. Said It's to get people to reframe what networking is all about. Networking is a place we go to give and serve and not get. And here are three stories and examples. And they said, Swain, that is awesome. We'll help you. We'll support you. Come speak to our company. I'll buy 500 books. I'll buy 300 books. I'll... So all my buddies supported me. And they helped me get on the speaking tour. They helped me market the book. And those are the guys who really helped me uh, uh, make this book a New York Times bestseller. And then my life exploded. So I shared it with them. And there was a period, Ryan, during that dinner six years ago that I almost wasn't going to tell them because I was kind of embarrassed. Mm -hmm. I I thought they'd say, oh, Sweeney, what do you think you are? Some kind of writer? And and some of the guys that I were at at dinner with owned big companies. They said, Joe, I got 3,000 employees. I bet every one of my employees would benefit from this book. So, um, so I had people that really supported me and helped me on my journey. So, if you're okay, and and I think that's super crucial, right? I mean, you're you are who you hang out with. I've been being, I've been got that hammered in my head since I was like two. And the the challenge that I see, I mean, even from when we owned our company and all the business owners that I know that are trying to figure out how to address this thing that you're talking about. What do you what what kind of advice do you have for the business owner who I mean to re-identify who you are when you're the visionary of a company is very difficult because not only is it your family and friends outside of your business but you've got your executive team you've got your employees who have really molded you into concrete of who you are and what your vision and what you're all about how do you do that when you've got this platform like that Well you just said something those are the people who mold you I don't think that's true. I think you need to um, rediscover, reinvent um, uh, yourself. And that's really, you got to take a personal responsibility on that. I'm not saying it's easy, Ryan. Um, but I think if you go to a halftime and realize I'm going to be dead. And, and, you know, readjusting, not everyone has to readjust. When I wrote this book, I went up to a high school here, Marquette um, University High School. It's a Jesuit high school, 1,200 young men. I had three boys go through that. I know a lot of the teachers. And when I talk about some of the things that I talk about in the third book, those teachers are not the market for it. They found out what they're passionate about, and they'll probably do it to the day they die or to the day they retire. They're molding and helping young men. You know, They're taking young boys and turning them into men. And so when you say uh, it's so hard to change, I'm not saying everyone has to. You may have to tweak things. And what I'm saying in in life after business, I've had a lot of guys that I've worked with say, you know what, 
I sold my business. I went to Florida. I retired. I freaking hated it. Right. Um, I golfed. I tried to get into the drinking scene. I can't do it. So I came back and I bought a manufacturing company again. I'm just doing it on my terms and I'm not doing it 80 hours a week. So when you go through that transition of what's next, you don't have to go from a businessman to, a, you know, to go volunteering at the church, something totally different. You know, you can just you can stay in business the rest of your life in different forms. You know, maybe instead of just retiring and going to Florida, maybe you stay involved in uh, mentoring young business executives if that's what you love. But it's not this whole transformation that, you know, I was doing this. Now I'm doing something 180 degrees different. It might be just tweaking things. I'm on six boards, as I mentioned. I do a lot of speaking and a lot of training, but I've got a lot of business experience and certain companies see value in having me on their board. And I love giving advice. I like helping mentoring. And so the form that that took is um, working with businesses. I loved working with high-performing athletes. I love working with high-performing people. Ryan, we haven't talked about this, but for three and a half years, I put together a transitional training program for the United States Navy SEALs. And so this year, I'm going two weeks in uh, San Diego, um, two different times, and two different times in Virginia Beach. I'm spending almost a month this year, and I did last year, helping the Navy SEALs transition from the military life to civilian life. I love being with high-performing people. And so that's kind of an example of rediscovering and kind of recalibrating and taking who I am and trying to help people in different fields. I I love it. And um, as I was talking to Lloyd about this, um, you know, you had mentioned it already, uh, Joe, where you were talking about dipping your toe in the water, where I think a lot of these business owners, because it is difficult to rediscover who you are, instead of just emotionally letting the or letting the emotions run the journey and just quickly selling because you want to do all this like taking the pause button reflecting on who you are and trying to dip your toe in the water and use your business as a platform and you've got it on your website and Lloyd uh, mentioned it in his TED talk as well as his website would uh, correct me if I if I'm mistaken a little bit but isn't it like get free get going or get free or get free get clear and get going you, you got it and you can't do that. You can't get clear, I think, unless you get quiet. Right. And, and the last thing you want to do is just randomly sell your company or randomly quit your job or whatever you're doing right now because you're emotionally you know, running on this new thing that you want to do where you, you can use your current situation, your current um, – what, what was uh, Lloyd was talking about? And you you'd mentioned it a couple of times where you, you use your community and use your connections – to further your new passion and purpose instead of having to just cut ties. Right, right. Um, and again, that's why you said it. Um, a lot of people have said it. You and I didn't come up with this line. You're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Mm-hmm. One of the things in the pause button to help you in this transition, and when I do workshops, I force people to do this, Ryan. I ask them to make a list of the five people they spend the most time with personally and the five people they spend the most time with professionally. Then analyze and put a plus or minus after those people. A plus is they energize me. A minus is they drain you. And this exercise scares the heck out of people. Oh, because if brutally honest, out of the 10 people you write, three of them you have to dump. Mm. And that's scary for a lot of us. That really scares a lot of us. But as you make this transition, you got to figure out who's on your, who's on your team. Lloyd will talk about 
when he went on this journey, there were some people that said, Lloyd, if you do this, you'll no longer be a member at the country club. <laughs> and he kind of said, I don't give a damn about that. Right. I'm, I'm trying to find my life's purpose and meaning. And those are people he didn't hang out with in the second half. He didn't join the country club. He sold his big home. He, he scaled down. He figured out how much is enough. I think from a financial term, Ryan, that's the biggest issue a lot of us have because you know if you make fifty thousand people in our society, a lot of us spend sixty. Then we make eighty, we spend a hundred. We make one hundred and twenty-five, we spend one fifty, and we're always trying to keep up. The problem with keeping up with the Joneses is once you catch the Joneses. They refinance and you're screwed. So you can never get them. <laughs> What's the other analogy that the dog that's chasing the car, all of a sudden he catches the car and he goes, now what? <laughs> no, yeah, it's the same thing. And, um, you know, it, the, the real question for most of us is from a financial term is how much is enough? And if we're all honest, most of us will answer this 10% more than what we've got. <laughs> Meaning we're never quite happy with everything yep, we do. Yep. You ever, you ever seen that study? It's by Princeton University about the correlation of income to happiness. Yeah, um, 75,000. Yep. After 75,000, it doesn't matter. Yeah, because I mean, 75 grand, you've got like pretty much the basics of your house and your cars and your food and your you know couple trips covered. And then there's like not even a direct correlation between money and happiness after that. Right. Yeah, I believe that. I really do. So I, I, I know we could probably keep going on and on. And I, I just absolutely loved all the different uh, topics and your book is going to be amazing. I think it's going to be unbelievably practical and it should be the, the, the guidebook for anybody that's even remotely thinking in uh, terms of what they're going to be doing next. And it's going to be right in line with all the other halftime books and uh, the in Lloyd's books. So I'm super excited. Um, Joe, what's the best way our, our listeners can get in touch with you can, you know, be looking out for the book. What, what's the best, best recommendation? Well, the book will be coming out later this summer because the whole publishing process takes time. As you know, the book is written. It's all done. And we're working on pre-launches for the next six months on this as, as the book goes through the publishing stage. But if any of your listeners have any questions, thoughts, comments, they can go to uh, joesweeney.com. Uh, there's boxes in there. They can uh, uh, ask questions, uh, stay in touch with us. Um, I think there's a lot of free downloads on our um on our website, and if you have any questions, feel free to reach out with us. Joe, I absolutely love the conversations. Thanks for much, so much for coming on the show. Right, thanks for having me, and if you or any of your listeners ever need anything on their journey, just send us an email. We'll do our best to get back and help them. Awesome, thanks so much. All right, take care.